My name is Maximus Decimus Meridius. I am Iron Man. Hello, hello, and welcome back to the Post-Cred Pod. We've got a great show for you today. Eric has an awesome interview with Lisa Joy. You know her as the co-creator of Westworld. She's also the director of Reminiscence, coming out on theaters and HBO Max. Later this month, that's the one with Hugh Jackman, Rebecca Hall, really cool looking sci-fi movie. This week, Friday. This week, oh shit. August 20th, baby. Whoops, I I don't even know what time it is in like the world, wow. Keep up with this show, you know I'm a huge fan of what I like to call, and I told her this, romantic (laughs) sci-fi. And this is that, with a little bit of like detective film noir to it. There you go. A-list cast, movie star (laughs) with Jackman, so I think it's the type of film that we honestly need more of. So you got that to look forward to. We're going to touch on What If, which premiered its first episode. We're going to be rounding into episode two later this week. And we're also going to do our mindfuck movie Mount Rushmore, which I'm really excited to excited for because that's really where Eric and I live, I think, to a certain degree. Well, where we live and the reason we're doing it today is because Lisa Joy is carving out a name for herself in, in this space. You've got Westworld. You've got this new film. She's producing the Denny Villeneuve and Jake Gyllenhaal show, The Sun. Very which, cool. Which sounds just like uncontrollable heat. And, uh, and she's, That's their third oh, or fourth collaboration, I think. J- Jake Gyllenhaal and Denny, right? Prisoner's Enemy. So third, uh, yeah, third. Third, okay. And, uh, and she also is producing a Fallout series, which is based on an iconic game that I love. So she's really starting to carve out her mindfuck space. I think outside of romantic sci-fi, uh, mindfuck is probably my favorite subgenre. Like, I guess you could say that mindfuck is technically thriller, maybe with like in you know, certain uh, instances. But it's a subgenre. It's it, it 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 gives you this unique feeling, and and one of which that when you're viewing a mindfuck film for the first time, that's both it's like gift and curse, right? That viewing <laughs> is so fucking thrilling. You're so um, lost in the world, right? That once you know that twist, it's never quite the same. But that first view. Or it's got even better rewatchability because you're like, holy shit, they set this up from the jump. This is genius. See, I don't I don't feel that way. I like I my best. I like being in in the dark, like not knowing something and then having it like, you know what I mean? And we'll talk about this more. But like to me, Fight Club is the perfect example of that. All right. So I guess it's dealer's choice because I like both. Well, and that's what's going to make this fun is because usually when we play our games, we're competing. But this time we're going to be we're going to have to put together a joint list and stamp it like that's that. So it's not it's not me versus you. It's one collective thing. We are going to start off, as always, with news. Now, this isn't exactly a little news tidbit I'm going to start with. It's not quite that. I cannot remotely confirm this. And this is less secure than the Kang and Loki rumor, which we ran uh, earlier this year, which did turn out to be right on the money. But I have personally heard whispers that the Wilson Fisk in Hawkeye and Matt Murdock in She-Hulk rumors are indeed true, that Vincent D'Onofrio and Charlie Cox, respectively, will be, quote unquote, reintroduced to the MCU since the Netflix things aren't technically canon. So I I have heard they will be popping up in those Disney Plus shows again. In Hawkeye and She-Hulk, respectively? Yes, so Wilson Fisk and Hawkeye, Matt Murdock and She-Hulk. Okay. Which, which, could, which other outlets have reported as rumors previously. And I, again, I, I'm not on sure footing with this. It's not as sure as the Kang and Loki, but I have heard that that is true from but, someone that I do uh, trust. Have you heard what, 
as it relates to No Way Home. I, I have not, I don't know anything about No Way Home other than what the public knows. This makes more sense because trying to squeeze them into No Way Home would be way too much. But having this be like someone to stir up buzz about, to be fair, everything the MCU puts out is gas, right? It's going to be a big deal. But I would argue the first three shows that they put out, WandaVision because of the circumstances, right? We were content starved. Falcon because of its scale and Loki because of its storytelling implications. I think that all three of those shows are bigger draw draws than their next three, i.e. What If, Hawkeye, and I think She-Hulk is next. So, which is to say that it wouldn't surprise me if the final What If drops a fucking bomb square on our face, you know what I mean? But so sort of that keeping the conversation going, momentum forward, always moving forward, that would be the perfect thing to have Fisk whether he be a supporting character or just pop up at the end to get the people going and to make even the smaller projects feel important. Yeah, I I agree with everything you said. And I do want to reiterate, this is just the whispers I've heard. We're not reporting this as like fact or anything. But we are one for one with Kang. So take that. So take that with it. Exactly. There you go. All right, moving on. Venom, Let There Be Carnage has been delayed three weeks. Sony is also nearing that $100 million deal with Netflix to offload Hotel Transylvania 4. First of all, uh, $100 this, million? What the fuck? I, I guess- Do these movies I, bang? Like <laughs> The Hotel Transylvania movies, are, you know, they're successful movies. I think Netflix is saying, I'll, I'll take a lower ceiling. I mean, uh, Sony might be saying, I'll take a lower ceiling. Guarantee. And Prime, you mean, not uh, the Netflix. Yes, sorry. That, that is also what I mean. I'm, I'm all over the place today, guys. Sorry. You're it's Monday late. and it's late, folks. Yeah, but basically discouraging sign for a theatrical movie going the rest of 2021. Optimistic counterpoint, though. Uh, you know him more than I do, I believe, but Daniel R. RPK, I don't know what exactly his deal is, but he seems to be in the know, tweeted and then deleted so quite quickly that the No Way Home trailer is going to drop next week at CinemaCon, not to the public, but it'll be showed. Also, obviously, Shang-Chi is going full steam ahead. Um, And furthermore, I saw a No Time to Die commercial a few times this week. Combine that with the fact that inside baseball, they have the press team starting to reach out. I think Hollywood, short of it becoming fucking absolutely dire and like back to where we were in square one, I think that they are just going to say, we're just going to have to tuck our heads down and, until it's warm out again. And then hopefully next fall will be better. But I cannot imagine them shutting it down again from October to March. It just doesn't seem possible. That's my point of view. I understand that that's maybe uh, willfully optimistic and ignoring the realities of where we're at. But just by sort of the behind the scenes move that they've made outside of things like this, suggest that they're not going to pull the plug to the same extent that they did last year. What's your thoughts here? Uh, well, I think Shang-Chi, if I was going to respond to any of your points, that one Bob Chapek said- on it was locked re- in, I know, yeah, but I'm just one. using it as more of a piece of, a, of an entire point. Yeah, I, I think we'll probably limp along a little bit longer with everything coming out as relatively scheduled and- if numbers stabilize, you know, we'll be relatively good to go. And if so then not, what are you feeling about of the holy date of October 22nd, which I believe sees the release of last night in Soho, um, Jackass four, not Dune, Dune's October. Yes. Dune and Dune. And then okay. there's one more that's escaping me. But what do you think about that day? 
I think uh, totally getting political here, getting fucking raise the alarms. Just get vaccinated and wear a fucking mask and we'll get all of our goddamn movies. I'm so Raise the alarms. Should I'm I put so, it? Should I put it in yeah, a sound effect? Do it, please, because I'm so sick of this shit. It's not a political issue. It's a Brandon wants to see. Oh, the fourth one movie. is the French dispatch. Jesus, that's a stacked weekend. Holy shit. Yeah. Like yeah. If, if we miss that weekend because assholes refuse to get vaxxed, I'm gonna I'm gonna fucking flip my shit. But where we live, I mean, I, I I I guess. But you would imagine that New York and Cali, where they're primarily concerned with, are two of the higher rates. I, I'm I'm hoping, man. But I, yeah. I have I'm a nihilist and a cynic at heart, and you know I have very little faith in humanity. So that's, I wouldn't be surprised if the rest. There, there you have no that. reason to have faith in us at this point. So <laughs> yeah, exactly. So everyone get vaxxed, wear a mask. Apparently, we uh, again raise the alarms. Yeah, he's pulling. Apparently, oh. apparently, this war we been in for the last 20 years didn't mean fucking shit so <laughs> and it's not yeah. funny but our world is hell the, so the, that yeah, is kind of funny the you cynical have to laugh through it. humanity is terrible that's that's the funny element for yes, sure exactly all right moving on to something slightly more optimistic <laughs> free guy <laughs> free guy opened unexpectedly well at the box office overperforming a lot of projections and now disney apparently wants a sequel according to a tweet from ryan reynolds it's the the first bit of goodish news we've gotten in a while because all of previous good news, like Black Widow's opening and everything, were undercut by like a second week drop or something like that. We'll see how it goes for Free Guy in the future. But hey, nice a nice little win for an original movie. And and Ryan Reynolds, who is a resident bro crush here at Postcred Pod. Here's what I think that this speaks to. A, I think it speaks to his likability. People want him to do well. Like they are, they will sooner give him a chance than they would. Courtney. Right, right, right. Exactly. Um, I think it speaks to the power of an orig- of an original movie, something that people don't see coming. They haven't read the books. They haven't played the games. They haven't read the comics. They don't know the story. But also, good word of mouth. This happens every so often where a film catches the wind of good word of mouth. And I feel like that only happens with original IP, which is to say... Which is to say that if you could get back to the way things used to be, get a, an A-list star, an, an inventive idea, and make a good movie, it can do well. That world still exists. At least I want it to. But that's what this tells me. Yes, this will probably be IP'd and franchised into not one more, but if that does well, two more. And then and then they'll turn it into a game itself. Who knows? But The, the free guy is- game actually intrigues me. Yeah, for sure. But the original film was an original idea with a good star, a cool concept, and it was executed well. And ipso facto received positive word of mouth. And there's something to be said about making films that way. Here, here. That was a, that was a nice little mini rant. I like that. Cheers. Good job, man. All right, quick hitters. David Iyer. Don't you patronize me. No, I, I'm I just that. kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. You'll know when I'm patronizing you. The tone will be very obvious. That I actually genuinely agreed with and supported. Uh, David Ayers confirmed that the leaked Suicide Squad script is real, confirms that the Harley Deadshot romance was filmed. Eric, I was so anti-Ayercut when this first started. I've come to the point where, like, fuck it. I kind of want to see it now. Dude, what a roller coaster. Okay, so yeah. I have been on record as being as against it as one person could be. But then a few weeks ago, when the new film was coming out, Ayer tweeted about like why he's so passionate about about his cut of the film and sort of his life story and where he came from. And I literally that tweeted, was nice. I was like, all right, dude, I'm on your side. now. This passion intrigues me, dude. Seeing the clips of this script go viral this week, 
I take it back. They look bonkers. I take it back. I take it all back. They they need to burn this fucking thing. Delete it from the cloud. (laughs) Send it to Mars. I don't care what you got to fucking do. They were so bad. That I that my first thought was we need to start we need to start to write our script tomorrow because these motherfuckers will take anything at this point. Well, listen, that's kind these of are the people that are giving the keys to Batman to. That's kind hire of me tomorrow, WB. That is kind of why I want it though because it is so bonkers, crazy, batshit out there. I'm like, fuck it, this is different than anything that's really in the market. I don't think it's necessarily gonna be great or good, but I want to see it because. It is a roller coaster ride. Oh, I don't know, man. That is, I feel like that that is a ship that's taken on a lot out of water right now. <laughs> that's well said. <laughs> All right. Peacock has ordered a Field of Dreams TV series inspired by the movie. Now, immediately off the bat, hate that, but Michael Schur is attached. Michael Schur is the guy behind The Good Place, Brooklyn Nine Nine, uh, you know, The Office, a lot, a lot of iconic, lovely comedy. Also, props to them for the timing of this news. The Field of Dreams last game last week was the most watched regular season MLB game in 16 years. Wild. But, you know, good gimmick. And it was a great game. Oh, yeah. Great game. I mean, the Yankees lost, but it was still a great game. <laughs> don't, I, the, I, I don't think the Mets have won a game since June, so. <laughs> uh, FX and FX on Hulu have ordered new seasons and new spinoffs of Ryan Murphy's American Horror and American Crime Story. I, I don't care. I, I, I've come to the very real conclusion that Ryan Murphy's not like he's a prolific producer, but I don't like almost every single yeah, thing. I, I haven't watched something he's done since American Horror Story season two. So, yeah, there you which go. which is which bangs. Yeah. But it's yeah, no. he, he peaked with OJ versus the people. But that was and, his best, best piece of and content. to be fair, though, a lot of what he puts out perhaps is not for two straight white dudes. And that's OK. Yeah. But, like you know, I, long story short, I just don't I just don't like him overall. He seems like a nice guy, but sorry. Yeah. Uh, Emma Stone closed her deal to return for Cruella 2 and is clear based on the details and everything that's been reported that the ScarJo lawsuit helped her pave the way to get paid because she's getting, she's being made whole, quote, by Disney, getting an eight-figure sum because of the hybrid release. She's getting an eight-figure sum up front for her paycheck for Cruella 2, and she's negotiated a, a piece of the revenue, which includes Disney Plus, potentially revenue. So. <laughs> Thank it, God. You know, shit's changing. Yeah. Thank God. I was worried about her and ScarJo. I wasn't sure if they'd be okay. But now, knowing that, I'm, I'm joking, dude. No, I'm no, totally no, no. kidding. Like, all <laughs> right, sweet, Emma. Congratulations. You made an eight figure fucking. No, but it's important for talent compensation across the board. You know, yeah. it, it really is like an entire mountain of, of levels, not just rich people getting richer. It helps everybody. Right, right, right. But yeah, you know, cry for the billionaires. Hmm. <laughs> All right, Atlanta season two is set for an early 2020 debut. Finally. Three. Season, yes, sorry, three. And season four is now in production. Uh, one of the best shows on television. Yeah, dope. Great news. Amazon's Lord of the Rings series, taking a page out of blockbuster films, has staked out a release date in September 2022, a year early. Listen, thought it going to be the best show ever, the work show ever. There's no in between here. Yep. I mean, yeah. Haven't you not watched the full trilogy? No, no, I did actually a couple months ago. Solid. Cool. It's it, it, yeah. Good. <laughs> We're going to have to talk about that more in depth one day. Uh, and then Tom Hanks, sci-fi feature Finch will debut on Apple TV plus November 5th. There's originally a universal movie that they sold off. I'm pumped. Tom Hanks, sci-fi like a man. Tom Hanks needs a win. It's been a I, while. Greyhound was solid. Post was solid. Was it though? Greyhound was solid. It was, okay. it was a. I wrote a America's Dad is now making dad movies, and that's okay. That was like my I, headline. And I, I think I watched it for about like thirty minutes. I was like, okay, I've seen enough of this. <laughs> uh, 
listen, it's fine. It's, it's inoffensive fineness. <laughs> uh, all right, let's move on to the What If premiere episode. It's Marvel's new animated series on Disney Plus, adding to their fledgling empire on the small screen. Uh, Eric, to start, just what are your general thoughts since we got the first three screeners? <sighs> well, I, I no spoilers. Watched, don't worry, everybody. Yeah, I only watched the first two because I got them because they only give them to you for three days. Which look, Disney love you, uh, and I usually always tune in. But that weekend, I had a wedding, so I could only watch the first two. From what I've heard, the third one's the best one. So fuck it, me, it right? Um, to that <laughs> to that point, maybe it's because it's my fault, but. Or maybe it's because of the length of them or the format in which they come with. I couldn't find myself getting locked in the same way that I would a a live action film or show. But I think that's sort of the point. Like, it's not meant to be this deep, like this deeply engaging storytelling format. It's supposed to be enjoyable and fun. I mean, it's called What If? Like, and they're literally just saying, what if all this crazy shit happened? I mean, that's that's the entire premise of the show. So if it's quality, which when you know what the MCU is going to be, animation style aside, which I wasn't necessarily nuts about, but you know that the storytelling is going to be good. You know that the voice work is going to be good. Um, You know that it's going to be important to the MCU overall. We don't know how yet. But I think the best way to describe it, it's the perfect appetizer and or dessert for them to put in between their bigger scale things. Just scratch that itch, right? And it makes sense that they're ramping up the production of animation because not only is it, not only can you do it from home, but it's probably cheaper and they can churn at, well, yeah, I mean, of course it is. And they could churn out more of them. So sort of, this only adds to the to what I think is their end game of MCU content all 12 months per year. And this seems like the fastest, cheapest, lowest risk, highest reward way for them to get there. Yeah, I agree with almost all of that. And honestly, I'm just going to read my tweets that, that encapsulate my what if thoughts once the embargo lifted, because I just think I said all I needed to say there. Uh I enjoyed What If, but felt it left potential on the table through three episodes. Multiverse lets you explore how different characters respond to the same criteria, how abilities liberate what's already inside, and different worlds would be with slight tweaks. But What If leans solely on its eponymous question, I know I butchered that pronunciation, before playing out more or less exactly as you would expect. It's imaginative, but not quite inventive. Still, it's fun to see the alternative ripple effects of an MCU-adjacent world in What If, familiar yet tweaked in ways that can be self-aware, very humorous, and unique. And then hearing Chadwick Boseman once more in an upcoming episode, particularly in the context of his great installment, is something special. So uh, I'm pretty much aligned with you in that it's fun. I liked it, but I wasn't necessarily over the moon early on. Well, that said, though, well, I'm not. And that's a great word because that is exactly how I was going to describe it. Well, I wasn't over the moon with the macro. The micro intrigued me. The episode, the first one, I liked Captain Carter, you asked, would I want to see her in live action? Absolutely. I really liked the the character. I thought that the writer, A.C. Bradley, when I talked to her last week, made a great point of... Check out that episode. Another great interview by her. Take the trappings of what cap means and put that into being a woman in the 1940s and then later in whatever year that she winds up in. I think that that's a really cool story to tell. I don't know if Haley Atwell could be like, I don't know if she's, I don't know the right way to put this. 
it's better suited for a TV show than a movie. Yes, yes, exactly. I don't know if she could carry a film, but if they were to turn her into a live action character, that is something that I would 100% watch. Now, when it comes to, and as we've talked about pretty much every time we talk about the MCU, how this connects to the world as a whole, it's believed that the tentacle-esque creature that comes out of the portal thing is Shuma Garath, who has been rumored to be the Doctor Strange 2 villain before this came out. I'm willing to bet that's probably the case at this point. Now, what I think is more interesting than that is sort of the manner in which they would appear, which is what I also asked director Brian Andrews last week. I had heard rumors that Captain Carter and Shuma would both appear. So it made me think like, is it going to be in like Roger Rabbit form? Like, is Doctor Strange going to peer into an alternate timeline and see, holy shit, they're all cartoons. Like, would they get that meta with it? That is sort of where my head went. So while Shuma Garath, no, I'm assuming if he did appear, he would be sort of a CGI creation. But I'm wondering if, like, the animated characters, like, their universe is a cartoon. Like, that's just how they exist like kind of just... like spider-verse with uh with spider-ham and whatever right exactly so right exactly so those are sort of my okay. big thoughts i think that the captain carter character was cool and i liked the way that it's potentially tying in to dr strange too because i think the fascinating it will be fascinating to see how they build a bridge between a animated world and live one i mean anytime you name drop roger rabbit obviously my ears are going to get perked up you know <laughs> it, that's just natural now, you're talking about the Doctor Strange connection. You're talking about live-action Captain Carter, which has spurred a lot of rumors. Do we think that What If is MCU canon in that the entire show are, represents the branching timelines unleashed at the end of Loki? Is this just an extension of what we've now seen? I think you have to, because even like the intro it seems to be taking you on a ride through one of those timelines like the colors are similar I, I don't know if you recall but when jeffrey wright is doing his voiceover uh which is which i doubt is the only reason they brought him in you know what i mean because that's all he does in the first one is to say one question what if you know what i mean so <laughs> i think when he's doing I'm that at, gordon wait shit wrong universe when, when, when he's doing that at the start you're sort of traveling through space and you're you look like you're on one of those branch timelines. And I think they've already confirmed it's canon. But I, I want to know if it's if it's canon in the sense that we are watching the aftermath of Loki. Oh, That's what I, I say. Yeah, yeah. And, I, and in that I think, sense, you know, Marvel doesn't do anything by accident. Why put what if two weeks after the Loki finale or three or however long right. it was? You know, why, why do that in that placement? More so than just, hey, we got to reduce churn on Disney+. Plus. This is a strategic layout. I have to believe that we're going to find out that this this literally is, you know, you killed uh, that version of Kang. This is what's happening. Right. And that, and as I said at the top, I just think dropping a bomb is their way to keep the conversation going. And it wouldn't surprise me by seasons one end if they have that sort of uh, not Kang-esque reveal, but something that will connect it to the greater thread. Uh, maybe of your Doctor Strange like live action melding where it's like he's like, wow, the multiverse is in madness. Yeah. Yeah. So I could see it. Oh, and from what you've seen, they get better with each passing week, right? So let's yeah, hope that I that's like, the, yeah. I like two more than one, and I like three the most for yeah, sure. Okay, so let's hope that that's the trend for the whole season. Yeah. All right, you want to get into our mind fuck let's section get, now that we've kind of already dabbled in a bit of mind fuckery? Yes, sir. I'm ready. <laughs> yeah, my mind is 
Actually, that's too dirty. <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> I was going to say my my mind is spread and ready. There you go. That, that's quite dirty, but you know what? I'll hop into bed with it. Don't worry. <laughs> this episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Now, our mindfuck section. Like we said, we are going to build a Mount Rushmore of mindfuck movies. Now, first, we're going to identify and define what a mindfuck movie is. We're going to talk about what makes a mindfuck movie good. And then we're going to kind of run through our handful of options. we got five each, more or less. we got, you know, others we'll throw around. And we'll try to compose our Mount Rushmore. Again, like Eric said up top, this is not a draft. We're not competing against each other. We're trying to do a kind of a composite. Yep. You know, this is a, a coalition of the willing, to quote <laughs> my man Dave Chappelle. Chappelle. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So to start, what qualifies as a mindfuck movie? Well, first, Urban Dictionary defines it as an idea or concept that shakes one's previously held beliefs or assumptions about the nature of reality. I thought that was a pretty good summation. But I want to add, because it's more so in entertainment terms, that a mindfuck movie is deliberately, you know, obtuse, opaque, confusing, or vague, but in service of a larger plot mechanic and thematic narrative. Now, the trick, Eric, is pulling that off without ever losing sight of your characters or the storytelling thread, you know, because once it becomes about the mystery box cloak and dagger and not the characters we go on a journey with, that's when you've spiraled out of control and gone too far. I think both you and Urban Dictionary have done a great job of summarizing something that I largely thought was porn, i.e. you can't really define it, but you know it when you see it. And that's sort of how I've always considered mindfuck films. Like nobody really ever had a definition of it, but we all knew what they were. So in terms of like actually breaking it down to a fine point, well done there. I would argue it's anything that, and this is kind of cheating, and this is not the conversation that we're having, but I think technically a mindfuck movie is anything that leaves you in disbelief of what you're seeing, i.e. something like The Raid or The Dark Knight, where you just simply cannot comprehend the filmmaking feats that you're seeing. Now, those type of movies aren't going to make our list because, again, this is the Mount Rushmore, but I do think films like that also qualify may i make a friendly amendment though please could we say that those movies like you just talked about a raid the dark knight something like that are mind blown movies instead of mind fuck movies where you are absolutely blown away with how good and and yeah 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 because there's nothing in the raid that surprises you other than the stunts like nothing plot wise is actually in fact the, the raid might have the most simple plot of all time but I just say mindfuck in the sense of like the first time you watch it is an experience. Your brain remembers it. Your mind is di- like your mind got fucked. Like the first time I saw the Dark Knight changed my life. My mind got fucked. <laughs> I mean, I get it. You lost yeah. your mind virginity. But again, that is not really the conversation that we're going to have. So to focus our conversation, I've come up with some criteria. You crushed this. This is unbelievable. Thank <laughs> you. Yeah, I appreciate that, buddy. And if you have any, please throw them no, in. No, uh, no. These are just All some yours. criteria that make, in our opinion, a good mind fuck movie and just some kind of directing, organizing principles to keep in mind. So 
has a few of them. I'll just run down them quick, quickly. Groundbreaking technical achievements like 2001 Space Odyssey or Inception. Well-earned and shocking twist. Sixth Sense, A Beautiful Mind. Pure artistry, something like Arrival from our boys in Evil Noob. Uh, unique concept, being John Malkovich. Rewatchability, Donnie Darko, a mindfuck movie I love returning to every now and then. A uh, concept fueling the plot or action. So like Edge of Tomorrow, which is this humorous action movie that derives all of that momentum from this, hey, we're gonna begin each day again like Groundhog Day. Uh, deeply focused characters. Uh, so that's something like Ex Machina, which is a chamber piece, very narrow, very focused. Spawning a genre defining trope, gotta be Fight Club. That is kind of the premier one. And then an ambiguous ending that doesn't feel like a cheat. So to me, and this is a little controversial, I, I think that a good example of that is K-Pax and Vanilla Sky, two polarizing films that a lot of people don't like. But two I personally films don't. I have not seen. Oh, wow. I, I would love to get your take because that's a, those are divisive films. The latter of which is with Tom Cruise, correct? Tom Cruise and Cameron Crowe, yeah. Oh, interesting. Yeah, a lot of people hate that movie. I personally Is it sci-fi? Yeah, yeah, it is. Great title. Vanilla Sky. And you'll you'll see you'll see why it's called Vanilla Sky. I would definitely love to get your take on that because again, you know, people either love or fucking hate those movies. Right, yeah, right. I definitely right. really like them. Yeah. Well, I think by their nature, mindfuck films are gonna be divisive because if you don't buy into the twist, your first reaction is probably like, what the fuck is this shit? What have I been watching this whole time? You'll either be disgusted or confused or let down. So that's why it's such a high wire act to play because once you once you play your card, you're defining what that film is. And there's really no turning back from that. So, so people, mindfuck films could be such that people could be on board for three quarters of the film. And once they get to the twist, if they hate it, it will discredit everything. They Think about Thrones. Yeah. Think about all the work that Thrones did just for its ending to blow it. The mindfuck genre is the distillation of that. Your twist so is, right. what, is what either, or if you're an average movie, Right. You're just like, oh, I'm kind of bored. I don't know what's going on. I'm confused. This is slow. And then if the fucking twist peels your cap back, you're like, oh, my God, they snuck one by me. So that and I think that that is why it's such an exhilarating genre, because the creators are taking risks. And again, the first time you watch it, you're largely in the dark, which is something like a film that we're going to talk about Gone Girl. I can't say that because I had read the book before, but I could only imagine when you find out halfway through that this bitch is alive, you know, you're just, you, you can't believe what you've just seen. So I, if you can't tell by the tone of my voice, this is a formative genre for me that I deeply, deeply love. You make an excellent point. By its very nature, the mindfuck genre is incited. Big reactions one way or the other. And thus they are willing to take risks. They're usually more ambitious than your average run of the mill drama. It's a great point that we have to keep in mind that, frankly, you know what? There, there should be a little division. If, if not everyone is on board, maybe you did something right. Yeah, exactly. All right, so let's move on to our Mount Rushmore of mindfuck movies. You want to go one, one v one? Even so, though I here? put mine in ABC order. Um, these are the ones that I just think deserve to contend. But first, I just want to do two personal shoutouts that, while I don't think they're worthy of being of, of even being on their list. They're two of my favorite films of all time. And that is Eternal Sunshine of The Spotless Mind. You love and, that movie. And Looper. Uh, those are two mindfuck films that are in my top. I mean, Eternal Sunshine is in my top one. Yeah, I'm Looper. surprised you're not putting it on your, your Rushmore. Be, 
because I think I think it it ha- it has m- because I think it has more in common with romantic than mindfuck. I think I think once you wrap your head around what's going on, it's not that confusing, and there's no sort of like big twist, right? Like they're upfront with you from the start. They're like, here's what's going on. Looper to that end end as well. It's not necessarily you're in the dark about the greater lore, i.e. the kid, but the conceit of old Bruce and young Bruce is presented right in front of your face. What's shocking about it, i.e. mindfuck, is the ending. And that is sort of what I just touched on. Like that's a uh, that that's a film whose ending elevates everything that I had just seen before. So with that said, do you want to go back and forth or yeah, you want to go just, back and forth? Oh, and then one more honorable mention shout out. P. Diddy's mindfuck scene in Get Him to, to the Greek. I hope your mind's wearing a condom because I got a dirty mind or whatever. Whatever yeah, Jonah right. Hill says. All right, so mind. I've got, and again, these are ones that I think this list could go on all day, but these are yeah. the ones I think genuinely should be considered. Annihilation. Oh, that's a, that's a serious one to start off with. A very divisive movie. <sighs> I love that film. Thanks to your suggestion. I've been reading the book even weirder. Not that deep in, so don't ask my thoughts. Don't tell me anything, but weird. Uh, you want me to give you a warning, though? Okay. Second and third books, you can just you can just skip them. Oh, interesting. Okay, fair enough. But the first book, I, I think, is like a borderline masterpiece. I love that book. So, oh, wow. Then I, okay. So, I remember watching this film and what's great about this one is not only is there mindfuckness baked and baked into the plot, but the atmosphere of it is so goddamn uncomfortable. And then finally, it's just, you just, the dread. So not only are they hitting you over the head with sci-fi tropes and mindfuck tropes, but horror tones. That is a brew right there where if you're cooking at, uh, at full strength, you've got some magic there. I think that film does this because its ending is one of the more disturbing things I've ever seen in like a weird way. Like you don't, you're not even sure you understand what what you're watching, but you're like, I don't like this. <laughs> it is it is an art house film that was like pseudo sold as like look at all these star women like kicking ass together, and that's not what it is. Even though it is the most talented cast you can assemble, but. It is an esoteric son of a bitch. Yeah, but I really, really enjoy that film, and I'm gonna rewatch once I'm done with the book to compare. Honestly, now you've you've inspired me to rewatch it too. I really, really like Annihilation. Yeah, uh, I'm gonna start with one that's I think a bit more down the middle in terms of mindfuck selections, but that doesn't disqualify its its uh, uh, quality and, and requirement on this list, in my opinion. That's the Prestige, Christopher Nolan's arguably his best film. The second act is called The Turn. The magician takes the ordinary something and makes it into something extraordinary. But you wouldn't clap yet because making something disappear isn't enough. You have to bring it back. A movie that only gets better with rewatches as we discussed at the top. You you love the unknown. I, I love that too, but I also love going back and being like, you you meticulous son of a bitch! You plotted this all out at every damn turn, and everything but fits. That less place. so than Fight Club doesn't. Uh, Fight Club, and I'd also argue Shutter Island doesn't rest on its twist as much. Yes, the the payoff is unbelievable, but it's an elite film before that. Yes, and, and I, that's, that's a result. Of it. Yeah, yeah, and that's a result of Nolan probably being the best at this. But I would say that it that 
your point about it being rewatchable because you notice things cannot be applied to all mindfuck films and can only be applied to great films that also happen to be mindfuckery. Yeah, I mean, if you're a shit film, I'm not going to go back and rewatch, no matter what the twist is. Right, exactly, (laughs) exactly. But I also think we got to give credit because in 2007 or 8, when the movie came out, geez, only one Batman movie had come out. Yeah, Hugh Jackman had a couple X-Men films, but I still think we weren't quite sure who these guys were as stars. And looking back on it, it feels like a little bit of a time capsule of not a atypical movie stars rising to the top you know some really really talented leading men doing non-traditional leading men roles all three of their careers intersected there at the perfect time yeah scarjo's great in it michael kane's great in it yeah. david bowie's great in it and i think it is narratively the most compelling of christopher nolan's films and and the least attached because I think the criticism against him is that he's a bit cold as a filmmaker, which I agree with. But, but this is here. one of his warmest films, if not. Uh, yeah. His, his people feel like people here. I don't think that it's so much he's detached. I just think like his ideas are inherently romantic ideas, but I just think his characters and therefore the, the screenplays are so consumed with the intricacies of the plot that they could seem robotic in their explaining of it. Too cerebral. Yeah, okay, so to that end, my next film, Blade Runner 2049. I don't need to go on and on about this film. This is number five on my top five films of all time. The first viewing experience, again, as I said, mindfuck films, they really draw you into their world if you're doing good because you're so consumed with figuring it all out that you forget everything else. Adding to that is how long this is, which is one of the few times that I enjoyed a long movie. And it's also mindfucking in the sense of its existence, like making a, a sequel <laughs> to a cult sci-fi film from 40 years ago. But um, I will ask, what were you mindfucked in within the context of the movie? The, the plot. Believing that Gosling was the child of Harrison Ford's character to find out that he was not. I was all in. I was totally sold on, wow, the memories, the horse. All this shit. Wrong. He's just some regular robot. And while it's a devastatingly sad twist, the first time I was like, you fucking kidding me. And then it just add the general beauty and technical achievement of that film on top of all that. What more could you possibly say about this film, especially on this podcast? And may I add that I believe that the twist actually makes Kay more human, not less human, because ultimately he chooses to sacrifice himself for a cause greater than himself, knowing that he's not the chosen one. Right. And I think that is one of the most, you know, empathetic things any creature can do. And thus, that's how he achieves it. Yeah, humanity. I probably rewatch that once a month. Yeah, I mean, God. You and I have both tweeted some variation of like logging on to HBO Max. Like, what's the latest new movie? Like, fuck it. Going to watch Blade Runner 2049 <laughs> instead because <laughs> it's too, too hard not to. All right. My next entry. This one will be divisive in the sense that I, I can accept an argument that it doesn't belong. The Truman Show. Not a traditional mindfuck movie because essentially it is played straight up. There is not really subterfuge within the narrative itself. It is a mindfuck in the sense that our central character has to have the 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 car. He's the, the one getting mindfuck. Yeah, exactly. Not not necessarily the audience. We are in on it. We are informed uh, uh, bystanders, whereas he is the one coming through the realization of the mindfuck. But 
I think Jim Carrey's best role should have been nominated for an Academy Award. Just a beautiful film that is really a tragic comedy that's also inspiring at the same time. This guy's whole life is a lie, and yet his indomitable spirit and, and will to, to live and, and exist beyond the safety of what's been created for him. It, it's just wonderful. I never get tired of watching that movie. One of the best rewatchabilities of any film ever. And I also want to caveat, I meant to say this up top, all of my choices for the top five are relatively contemporary. They're the last 25 years. I know there's a ton of good movies from a hundred years of cinema, but these are the ones I have a connection oh, to. Oh, yeah, same. Okay, so next, and we don't have time to delve in deep all mine, so I'm just going to run through a few here. Black Swan, uh, Donnie Darko, which is a film I've not seen in a long time, so if you want to vamp on that quick, go ahead. Uh, a movie that I think isn't quite as good as we we once thought when everyone, every, every 13-year-old sees it for the first time and is like, whoa, I don't think it quite holds up, but great rewatchability, unbelievable performances, a lot of young stars. And one that's able to, you know, if you ever look up the Donnie Darko Explained, it, it actually does fit into place. And, it, and it's a, a compelling thing to, to argue about and build upon theory. It, um, it's arguably the poster boy mindfuck film, though. For our generation. Yeah, yeah. yeah. For, particularly um, formatively. And then next I've got Fight Club. This is how I met Tyler Durden. Come on, hit me before I lose my nerve. Okay. Ow! You hit me in the ear! It was on the tip of everyone's tongue. Can I be next? We just gave it a name. Gentlemen, welcome to Fight Club. Which, again, as I said, I think I've said a few times on this podcast, this is one of the film viewing experiences that I cherish the most because, like, growing up, you're like, you hear, like, Fight Club. I mean, there's the cliche of, like, the college posters. Like, everyone in college had a Fight Club poster. Uh, you know, you've got Brad Pitt sort of putting his stamp on I'm a movie star. Like this is this is gonna be my fucking world for the next 25 years. You've got Ed Norton, both of them again, like catching each other at the right times. Like they were yeah. proven, but they weren't solidified yet. You've got Fincher, who I think outside of Nolan is probably the preeminent mind fuck director. You've got a legacy that this movie, similar to Donnie Darko, is arguably the prototypical mind fuck film. Yes, I think it leans a little too much into action to to really be a mindfuck film because I think that like it doesn't become a, a mindfuck film until the twist, right? Then you're like, oh, wait but a then minute. Then it becomes the archetype for all films that followed, and it's like, you yeah. Know, but up until but up until the twist, it's sort of a standard, straightforward like crime action thriller. I still think it's a character study more than I would say it's it's those things. Yeah, yeah, but. So those are just three that I wanted to sort of group in. Thoughts on Fight Club? I mean, I, I love it. And I, I think I love how it's also become uh, the poster boy for misunderstood intentions. Like everyone's like, Tyler Durden's the man and David Fincher and the whole cast are like, no, he is the uh, antithesis of, of healthy masculinity. He's <laughs> everything wrong with, you know, the kind of Y2K male generation. You right. guys are completely misinterpreting this. So I love that yeah. that's become a sub-meta narrative within the film's legacy as well. Yep. All right, so three that I want to throw out there too, a lump together. I'll say Interstellar because it's a movie I love more each and every time I watch it, even though I can understand it, maybe not taking a place on the Mount Rushmore. You know, I just, I just, oh God, I love Interstellar. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to say The Matrix, which is still one of my favorite films of all time and is groundbreaking for Eastern, you know, Hollywood, uh, Western Hollywood cinema. 
And then I'm going to go a little bit left field, the usual suspects. I don't think that's left field at all. All right. Well, then I, I like the support. I, I just felt like it's a bit like what you said. It's not necessarily a mindfuck movie until the twist, but it's one that once again, you rewatch it. It's unbelievable. First viewing. It's absolutely great. It is so unbelievably well put together with such idiosyncratic kind of performances from each of the character actors. I, I, Usual Suspect, one of my favorite movies, and obviously Kevin Spacey and Brian Singer, the legacy is tainted, but in a vacuum. But this to me is one of those ones where first watch, great, rewatches once the twist is out, eh. I, I still think it's so stylish, such a contemporary update of film noir, such a great unfurling of anecdotes and reality that it is just a unbelievably entertaining watch from start to finish yeah. that is so unbelievably well scripted christopher christopher mcquarrie wrote it and he obviously has gone on to become the man with mission impossible yep yep um all right so i have going down my list gone girl which touched before inception uh because nolan i'm gonna posit that we need to put nolan's filmography as a whole on because i think you can make a case that every single one of his films have a element of mindfuck to it and not just that but three or four of them are easily in the top 10 i agree with that but isn't that cheating of course but that's the fun it's our game (laughs) so it's gonna be like you know there's gonna be mount rushmore and then under mount rushmore there's a sub level that's just like here is the hall of nolan no no it's gonna be three faces and one of them is nolan's Okay, fine. It's gonna be three movies and then Nolan's face. All right, you know what? I'll I'll I'll, I'll accept and approve that. Um, <laughs> so Inception, Interstellar, as well as you, The Matrix, Memento, Nolan again. I mean, that movie is so mindfuckery that I still cannot comprehend it. Twenty years later, I still don't get it. It's a hard movie to direct. Old Boy. Yeah. The Prestige, Prisoners, our boy Denny. Yeah. I. I as much as I love 2049 and its scale and its sci-fi-ness is what puts it in my top five, but Prisoners is like Loki, my favorite Denny film. I still I, like Sicario more than I like uh, Prisoners, but I really like Prisoners. I mean, Hugh Jackman in that is just tour de force. And my boy, to blow Jake Gyllenhaal off the screen is pretty wild. Um, and Jake well, Gyllenhaal's character is named Loki. So it right. just comes back around for post-cred pop. Prisoners, Shutter Island, Seven, the original Total Recall. Ah, uh, yes. Great call. As well as you, the usual suspects. And now here are two legacy picks that uh, I feel like our hands are tied. And that's why I went the Nolan route of like, we're just going to include all of his films because on merit alone, how do we turn our backs to 2001 and the original planet of the apes? I think you're right. I think it's like, even though we are millennials and of course that generation of filmmaking probably holds the most weight for us. One of them has to be on there as the original mind fuckery on a mainstream widespread blockbuster scale we do we just have to i mean the the planet, the, the, they, like 2001 has gone on to define sci-fi and planet of the apes has gone on to it's become a uh what's the what's the word for like a term that you could replace like with oh shorthand shorthand oh yeah yeah the planet of the apes ending has become shorthand for plot twist like Everybody thinks of the statue on the beach and you know the shot, 
the movie, the title. It is like a cornerstone of the very idea of mind fuckery. So those two combined, I mean, if you want to try to whittle them down to one. Well, I like what you're bringing up here because they actually represent two different dimensions of the mind fuckery because Planet of the Apes is twist-based. 2001 is, okay, we are going to have obtuse symbolism and allegory throughout this whole thing. It's not really one single twist. Yeah. So to further cheat, (laughs) I say we do a modern Mount Rushmore at a fifth face on there. Why not? So we'll go Nolan's face. Post-cred pod world. Y'all just living in it. (laughs) Plus the Mount Rushmore is dumb as hell. I'm sorry if you've been there and thought it was cool. I mean, it's a rock. Um, so it's not we'll even go, the good rock. So we already have three of our five settled. I guess we're saying here we're going 2001, Planet of the Apes, Christopher Nolan's Body of Work. <laughs> I I think if we're gonna add another like shoe in, I would say The Matrix is my next. Like that's the one I'll go to bat for. That's one of the ones that I have starred off as one of the ones that I was going to say. I think we should include. The Matrix is everywhere. It is all around us. Even now, in this very room. You can see it when you look out your window or when you turn on your television. You can feel it when you go to work, when you go to church, when you pay your taxes. It is the world that has been pulled over your eyes to blind you from the truth. What it's about so the definitive. but what about the matrix is necessarily mindfuckery? The conceit, like its idea of that our world is not real. The entire conceit, and then how you navigate both worlds and the intersection of two, uh, of of both worlds, because he he is a different person in each world. Like in the real world, when he's not plugged in the matrix, he doesn't know kung fu and all that. And so I think you have all these little subcategories and discussion points of like. Well, what is real? Like, if he can't do that in the real world, does it really count in the matrix? But I just don't know. Is there ever a moment where you're like, yeah, the whole the whole thing when he when the first time they give him the pills and they're plugging him in so so they can track him and he touches the mirror and the goo is all over him. I'm like, what the fuck is happening? True, true. And, And I think it's it's again such a definitive entry and much like Fight Club inspired generation plural of movies and pretenders and you know would-be contemporaries i think it influenced cinema so much that we got to put it on there all right side that one off as our next choice but let's uh let's work through these a bit more one that i would go to bat for is shutter island you've got arguably the greatest director of the last 30 years and the greatest star or sorry the the last 40 years even and the greatest star of the last 20 years wading into a genre that they haven't done before and probably won't do again. Killers of the Flower Moon could potentially have that sort of vibe to it. And if it does, that'd be great. But the sense of mood in that film combined with not only the twist, the third act twist, where you find out that he's a crazy person, but also the end of film twist, where it's an ambiguous ending, where he leaves it on. You know, this place makes me wonder. Yeah, what's that, boss? Which would be worse? To live as a monster? Or to die as a good man?
Teddy. All those things combined, director, star, in film twist, end of film twist, mood, atmosphere, plot. I think it's got a strong case, particularly for me and my viewing experiences. I remember what, like the spot on my boy's couch that I was sitting when I was like 16 years old when this first came out and just being so thoroughly absorbed that it sticks with me 10 years later. Okay, look, I want to I want to preface this with saying I'm a Shutter Island fan. I like it. But the reason I don't think it belongs on Mount Rushmore is it is mid-tier Marty overall. I think it leans more so into being like But this isn't the Marty, genre. but but this is not we're not debating Marty's films here. I, I know, but being a mid-tier Marty means, you know, you're you're still you're you're a good damn film, but you're not like legendary Mount Rushmore status. You know, this is like a, a BB plus movie, in my opinion. And I think it leans more into genre th- thrills and experimentation than it does as a groundbreaking mindfuck movie. So what do you think needs to go in there instead? Seven? Because the ones that I've got, the ones that I've got queued up here are The Matrix, The Prestige, Shutter Island, Seven, and Inception. And since we're just doing Nolan's body of work, the only two left that I have that I think are rubber stand for me Matrix, which you said, and then this, oh, and then Shutter Island and Seven. That's sort of where it boils down to for me at this point. I might go with Fight Club at this point. I might put that in there as a genre-defining entry. I, I, I don't know. It's tough because I hear your point. Like, and I just said, Fight Club was like the po- like it is literally given how famous yeah. the poster is, the poster boy of mindfuck films. But up until the point where you realize that Tyler Durden is not real, it's very much as straightforward as you just said. Character study. Shutter Island, you're in no man's land the whole time. You don't know which way it's up. You don't know who's evil. I agree with that. I I understand you're you're marooned a little bit in uncertainty, but the twist helped contextualize this. Otherwise, I think the twist is uh, telegraphed a little bit because he's having visions, because you don't know what the fuck's going on. You're like, there's something off about this dude, and and I'm predicting that there's some sort of character reveal that is going to make everything that we saw before reconsidered. You know, I remember taking one look at the trailer and being like, that dude's in the insane asylum. So you think Fight Club, so you think Fight Club, so you think Fight Club is a better, oh, I've got you here, boy. You think Fight Club (laughs) is a better Fincher film than Seven? (laughs) You know what? Yeah, I do actually. I'm, I'm going with Fight Club over Seven. And you know I like seven. I'm pretty. Sure I know seven to me. I, I think seven. It's in the again, box. Fincher is just so good at this. I mean, that ending is literally iconic. I'd argue more so than the Fight Club twist. I would. We, I'd we, argue, we should put that out on a poll on Postcard Pod because that's just a fun question. Yeah, I would argue that that the seven twist is more mindfuckery than the Fight Club twist. So then, if all things even, if all things even, twist or. No, sorry. If seven is the superior twist, because not only not only do they unveil Kevin Spacey in the last 15 minutes of the movie, <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean, he just won an Academy Award for Best Actor at, at that time. And he pops up as the murderer. Not only does he turn himself in. So you're like, wait, what the fuck is going on? Not only is her head in the box, but Brad Pitt ultimately is the one who fulfills his 
murderous journey. Compare that to, hey, uh, Edward, buddy, you're fucking crazy. I just think it's le- I just think it's levels, man. I I am gonna, I'm gonna fight them- you on if you're not gonna give me if you're not gonna give me Shutter, then the Fincher film I will let you have is seven. But it's not gonna be Fight Club. That is that is where I will meet you halfway, or we're going Shutter. I, I I would take seven and Fight Club over Shutter, no matter what. But I will say, I, I will say that I think Fight Club makes you reconsider everything you just watched the twist and then makes you hunt for clues, which is a fun, active, engaging, participatory uh, watching activity. It makes you theorize more, whereas Seven's twist is gnarly and shocking, but it doesn't necessarily make you go back and be like, I need to see other elements. Okay. But I, but I would take both over Shutter Island easily. Well, then, he, okay. New I like tactic. Shutter Island, but I don't think Shutter Island is, you know, iconic or definitive. When's know? the last time you watched it? Shutter Island? I don't know, probably in the last two, three years, for sure. Definitely, like, relatively recently. In the grand So I'm going to give, so... Damn. Giving me a homework assignment to go read. No, no, it? no. What I was gonna say is I'll give you Matrix if you give me Shudder, and then we've got to meet halfway between Fight Club and Seven. What about that? All right, yeah, I'll take that for sure. Okay, so Matrix. I think Matrix is- Matrix, if we were talking about those four films, would still be at my top. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And Tired, No Way Home trailer. Wired. Matrix 4 trailer. That's what the fuck we're talking about on Postgrad Pod, baby. All Where right. is the Matrix 4? So, just to recap here, we are going with 2001. We are going with Planet of the Apes. We are going with Christopher Nolan's body of work. We are going with the Matrix. We are... Oh, shit. That's... F- oh, shit. We're doing five. No, that was four. Yeah, and then Shutter Island, but then seven or Fight Club don't make it. Well, I, I to get the Matrix on there, which is you know really the one I'm going to bat for most probably. I'm willing to take Shutter Island, even if I if I'm not 100 percent on board. Damn, I mean we've already cheated. We we simply we are out of cheats, so we yeah, can't we, we can't we cheated twice. We can't we can't cheat anymore. All right, then that's it. Rubber stamps the Mount Rushmore plus a face plus an extra face um, of mindfuck films. Two Stanley Kubrick's iconic 2001. A Space Odyssey. Planet of the Apes, the original was directed by who? I, believe, I was actually just looking that up I believe right now. Tim Bird, right? No, I'm just kidding. Um, uh, Franklin J. Schaffner, who oh. I, I'm, please don't roast us on Twitter. I don't know who that is. Yeah, I'm sorry. Again, this film came out in 1968. My mom was seven. So please back off to put it in context. Um, we are going with Christopher Nolan's body of work. The only film of uh, his I haven't seen is following, but I would argue everything since. And that's mine fuckery too. Okay. So following memento. Um, what's the one with insomnia insomnia Batman begins prestige the dark Knight. the dark Knight rises. Oh, sorry. The dark Knight inception dark Knight rises interstellar Dunkirk tenant, which we didn't even mention, which is so mind fucked. I don't think anybody out there actually understands it. He got too lost. He got he got too lost in, in his mindfuck sauce. No one's body of work. Brandon is selecting the Matrix, which I wholeheartedly agree with. I am selecting Shutter Island. Brandon's not on board with. He would have. At what point would you think that that film is deservedly in there? I mean, are, are like top ten? I mean, 
because it's it's tough because the other ones I was considering, in, in addition to the couple of the ones that I mentioned that didn't make it onto our list, Memento, Arrival, Shutter Island, Ex Machina, The Illusionist, Fight Club, Old Boy, The Fountain, Darren Aronofsky, which I love, Vanilla Sky, 12 Monkeys, 2001. So, you know, a handful of those I, I still put up above Shutter Island, but, you know, Shutter Island top 20 for sure. I, I really would need like a comprehensive list. In wow. It. It's a sacrifice, but hey, you're doing it for me, pal. How sweet of you. It's teamwork, baby. All right, that'll settle it. I love this genre. I hope it never stops. Given the trend of Hollywood these days, it wouldn't surprise me if more mindfuck content comes in the form of TV. Oh, which We've reminds me, some good ones. build your own mindfuck film. I was I was just looking at the clock. Do you want to like save this for another time if you wanted just to cut it shorter? Or, or... I've got us at 102, so we're fine. You want to? Okay, yeah. Because this is a quick, this is just a quick little fun thing. All right, cool. Then you want me to clap it out? Ah, let's just keep going. All right. Well, then we also built our own mindfuck movie, you know, loosely by attaching talent and concept to, you know, cap this off with what we want to see in the future. Eric, why don't you start us off? Okay. So for my producer, I'm going with the one and only Christopher Nolan, the king of the mindfuck. (laughs) I like it. Uh, For my director, I'm going with Carrie Fukunaga. Uh, True Detective, which he directed, is obviously very mindfuck. I actually just rewatched season one last week for the first time since it first came out. Amazing. But also, he dips into sci-fi romantic mindfuck territory with the Netflix series Maniac, which doesn't get enough credit. I love this show. Underrated as hell. Jonah Hill, Emma Stone, awesome show. He's also obviously been trusted with the big guns as he is the director of No Time to Die. So I think his combination of where he's come from and the type of projects that he's able to handle makes him the perfect choice. The star, I'm going with my boy, the one and only Jake G. Jake Gyllenhaal. Jake Gilly. Silly Jake Gilly, who apparently doesn't fucking shower, but that's okay. And then the source material, I, I brought this guy up on the show a few times before. Something written by this guy named Blake Crouch, who's Book Recursion, this is fascinating, was snapped up before it was published by Netflix in 2019 with both Shonda Rhimes and Matt Reeves attached to co-make it, but we haven't heard about it since. I also read his book, Dark Matter, which was doing variants before Loki made variants cool. Uh, His Wayward Pines trilogy was turned into a short-lived Fox show. It was only on for two seasons, but the talent set was incredible. M. Night directed the pilot, and it starred, and again, this is on cable, Matt Dillon, Carla Gugino, Melissa Leo, Terrence Howard, and Demon Tucson. So that would be sort of my perfect mindfuck film. Nolan, producer, Fukunaga director, Hall starring, and adapting something by Blake Crouch. I would watch the shit out of that movie, man. <laughs> hey, hey dude, this was your game. This was a fun one. Hollywood, like, where are you at? Throw money at these projects, I know. right? Uh, That's yeah. great. And again, again, if you were paying David Ayer to write that pile of shit suicide script, I could have a Batman film on your desk by Halloween, okay? I'm just putting it out there. I love that. I think that's a great collection of talent. Now I'm super interested in both recursion, the book and the potential TV show if it ever happens. Like yeah, very super, much on like radar if you now. Google it, there's been nothing on it since. It's so weird. But I'm clearly gonna buy that on my Kindle like tonight. Yeah. That sounds awesome. Oh, here uh, you want the plot? 
The yeah. novel centers on Barry Sutton, a New York City cop investigating the devastating phenomena the media has dubbed as false memory syndrome, and his opponent, Helena Smith, the brilliant neuroscientist behind the technology that could change humanity as we know it. All right, I'm in. Yeah. <laughs> that, that, I mean, that is mindfuckery written all over it. Yep. So if the, the goal was to build an interesting mindfuck movie, congratulations, sir. You have uh, won that game. Thank you, pal. All right, so for me, with my producer, I'm going with Jason Blum, who has mastered the, you know, micro-budget, high-upside horror psychological thriller film. I think he has a really, really, really good understanding of genre, and I think he knows exactly who his audience is and plays to that. I, I think he's a really savvy producer that I think can stretch a budget, which would be cool. Writer-director, I'm going with Alex Garland. He wrote the Beach novel, which Leo purposely did after Titanic as a great uh, mindfuck movie that wasn't on either of our list. He what? wrote it days later. What? <laughs> I've never heard of that. You've never heard of The Beach? No. I gotta write oh, this you, down. Got, you gotta watch The Beach, man. That's, oh that's a good God. movie. And oh Leo, pur- Leo purposely did it after the Titanic to move as far away from Teen Heartthrob as you can get. Oh, wow. That's intriguing. Yeah. And that, that's a full-on mindfuck of a movie. Oh, sweet. Uh, he wrote Sunshine. He also wrote Dread. He directed Ex Machina. He directed Annihilation. He wrote and directed Devs on FX on Hulu. He also unofficially directed Dread, which wasn't credited because of just behind the scenes drama and stuff. So I, he's perfect. I, I think he is cerebral and sophisticated and elevated. I've interviewed him before. You can check that out at Observer, Observer.com. Has a really, really great, strong grasp of kind of contemporary fears in society. And then for star, I'm going with Adam Driver, who, Oof. you know, you and I both think is one of the best actors of his generation. I, I think he's yet to do something yep. very mindfuckery, and I think he could absolutely handle it. And for concept, I'm not saying it needs to be a direct adaptation because that's really hard, but I'd love if it was kind of adjacent or inspired by Kurt Vonnegut's Slaughterhouse-Five, one of the best American novels, you know, a- a- ever written. Uh, something I've returned to multiple times since reading it in high school and absolutely has mindfuck written all over it because it deals with otherworldly elements and unreliable narrators. And there's just a lot going on that traverses space and time. And so putting Adam Driver in that kind of high concept scenario with a talented writer and director, with a smart producer, uh, that, you know, that to me is like $15 million budget, $135 million at the box office, you know? Yeah, what a goddamn shame. I mean, like that, like these all sound so great and we'll never see it. No, we'll, we'll never see you it. You know, but we should change our name from postgrad pod to Hollywood. Why does it sound like we're better at your jobs than you are? <laughs> Sincerely, Brandon and Eric. Listen, if they wanted me to actually direct the movie, then we'd have problems. But if you want just two guys thinking shit up in a room that you can then throw money at, I think we do a damn good job. We should just start our own uh, production studio, Rips Bong Inc. I, I'm dude, I'm in. Where, where is the contract? I'll sign right now. Oh, shit. All right, guys, that'll do it for the mindfuck section of this uh, pod. But it's not done with the mindfuck discussion because Eric is now going to be talking with Lisa Joy, director of Reminiscence, an upcoming HBO Max the- theatrical movie. Be sure to t- stay tuned for that because really a lot of interesting things and uh, a lot of little tidbits that you might uh, you guys might enjoy. Yep. Fallout fans, stay tuned. Folks, today we have an awesome guest as I am joined by Lisa Joy, the multi-talented writer, director, producer, also lawyer, which I didn't know, which explains why (laughs) all your work is so smart, uh, of HBO's Westworld and her new film, Reminiscence, which marks her feature directorial debut 
How are you today? And thank you for joining us. Uh, I'm great. Thank you. It's, it's good to be here. Uh, congrats on the film. This is this is something that couldn't be more up my alley as I, I, I think it falls under what I call romantic sci-fi. <laughs> and and as someone who hopes to one day be on your side of this Zoom chat, memory is something that fascinates me too. So I want to know, as a writer, what is it about memory that interests you, particularly when it comes to large-scale storytelling? I mean, memory is is just fascinating for for me as it is for you. First of all, as a sci-fi conceit, memory is basically a time machine, right? It's an organic time machine where we sit there and multiple times a day we're transported to you know different periods in our life and we look at them. And then as storytellers, memory is an incredible example of the uh, the possibilities and the traps of storytelling, right? Because we experience something and that occurs in a you know discrete moment in time but then we carry that moment with us through a story that we tell ourselves about that moment and in telling the story again and again through other discrete moments in time the story can change and grow embellished in ways that we ourselves don't even understand making us our own unreliable narrators you know and so as somebody who writes the idea that we're all writers rewriting our story again and again is incredibly fascinating to me. Well, I think you uh, approach that in this film in a fascinating way because this is sort of very eternal sunshine-esque where it's like, if we are able to access those things, how good or bad would that really be? You know, it's easy to sort of get lost in the past. But for all of the sci-fi trappings in this film, I was pleasantly surprised when I realized that it was a very much sort of detective noir throwback. And so I'm curious, were there any sort of particular films that inspired you in that regard? And I also want you to talk to me about melding sort of film noir and sci-fi and romance and world building all into one, what, two hour, 15 minute film? Yeah, I I mean, look, for noir, I was definitely exposed to and a huge fan of um, classic noir. And, you know, out of the past in particular was an influence on this. It's not quite noir, but, you know, vertigo is a huge influence on the unreliability of, you know, the subjective gaze. Um, so those things came into play in terms of the the way in which you're playing. I'm, I'm playing with different genres. It was not conscious. You know, I didn't set out to be like, I'm going to do a noir sci fi um, romance. It, it just it just kind of emerge that way. You know, I started with this romantic notion of memory and of loss and of desiring to go back to something that we cherish and also the dangers of going back to it and the biases that we might unintentionally bring with us in re-examining the past. And then it just sort of felt like, okay, well, for there to be action with it, 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 it really goes along with a noir, right? Like where they're trying to trace down an answer in an upturned world, you know? And this answer is both internal and psychological and external as you know you have to fight your way through a crazy landscape and in terms of the sci-fi i mean that's just the tech that allows us to literally go back in time in a weird way the world itself is becoming less sci-fi by the minute you know with with global warming and waters rising right it's real fi i know exactly it feels less it feels less sci-fi now i just wanted to create a portrait of a, a sort of realistic mirror to what our world would look like and 
unfortunately that doesn't seem to be the sci-fi aspect of the film so you sort of touch on what i i was going to ask next about uh like what the writing process looks like and what i really wanted to know is sort of what was the core idea here and then how do you go about expanding because you just said like the core idea is about loss and all that so how do you go about taking that core idea and then building this massive world and these great characters without losing the personal journey of the main character, which is ultimately the story you're trying to tell? Yeah, I mean, I start generally with with character, you know, and and because that for me is the most visceral thing. And if I can feel that, then all I have to do is logic my way through the rest, you know? And so there's something so universal about not only the interest in memory, but the idea of lust and love and desire, you know? Um, mm-hmm. And it's funny because I'm I'm a woman, but when I write these characters, it's not like I don't see parts of myself in the men as much as the women, you know, they're all coming from my head, you know? And so yeah, of the idea of, you know, thinking you're really in love with someone and then understanding maybe that was my own projection. Maybe that was my own need and a reflection of my own, uh, you know, missing pieces from the past, you know, maybe was I in love with them? Did I even see them? You know, do I have a right to feel hurt and betrayed? Or yeah. was it me who in some ways let them down at the beginning by not really seeing them for who I'm, they were? I'm not sure going back in the past will ever help you actually find out, you know, if anything, <laughs> it can make it more confusing. Um, I often find that the third act of a high concept film could usually fail to live up to what came before. I like to say, congratulations. I didn't think that that was the case in your film. I thought the third act was the best part. Um, I love the ending. What are the biggest challenges in creating a satisfying conclusion, whether it's film or TV that both satisfies you so you could tell the story that you want to tell, but also that you know that millions of people will also enjoy? What's that biggest hurdle for you? It's very hard for me. I can't possibly imagine, presume to know what people will enjoy. And and I think also what people enjoy. Even despite three, four, five years making one of the biggest shows on TV and getting constant feedback from it. Well, I I don't read the reviews or, or go online. I, I like I'm like a little hermit and I hide. You and me both. You and yeah. me both. <laughs> it's too scary for me. And I can't. Like I, I do the very best I can. I, I really do. I do the best that I can. And I try to learn from the people around me. And I try to surround myself with incredibly talented and diverse writers and crew and, and learn learn from them. But I I am not a strong, I do not have a strong enough constitution to, you know, just stand there and, and be like, lay it on me because I don't, I'm doing the best I can. <laughs> well, then let's forget about the fan point of view. What is the hardest part for you as a writer to to craft a satisfying conclusion for yourself? Because I imagine just from my own experiences and knowing film that that's got to be the the hardest part. Yeah. I mean, for me, I have to feel moved. I have to feel like in the writing of something that I, too, have learned something, you know, that mm-hmm. I've gone on a journey as a writer and figured something out, you know, about myself or about the character on, on the way there, you know? And of course, by the time you're done polishing it, it doesn't have that newness anymore, but you know, for me, for me, that's it. Like I have to at least, you know, you never know if you're going to please anyone else, but you have to at least start with learning something about yourself 
right. while you're writing. <laughs> yeah. So you're saying it's a personal journey. It just so happens to be a multi-million dollar film that will be seen by millions of people. No sweat, <laughs> no pressure. It's just like a diary entry. <laughs> heels and, you know, big underwater. I, um, if you don't mind, I actually would like to swing over to Westworld real quick. Um, I could talk to you about Anthony Hopkins work in that show all day, but the one scene that has stuck with me, and I genuinely mean this, it's one of my favorite TV moments of all time. The one scene that stuck with me is the goodbye between Ford and Bernard at the end of season one, because not only was it a mind-blowing twist, I did not see it coming, but it was emotional knockout as well. As a creative, is the conversion of those two simultaneous cerebral and emotional excellence your ultimate goal? And what do you remember most about writing and or shooting that particular scene? Are you are you talking about the scene where they the shake first? hands and say and, and say goodbye? And it's revealed that like Ford has kind of been the good guy the whole time. And he's been pulling the strings, right, right. putting them through hell, but with the end game of trying to help them. I mean, when you have actors like Jeffrey and Tony Hopkins, it's. And, and by the way, all the rest of them, Tanaway, Evan, I mean. You still wrote it, though. You know, don't don't uh, sell yourself short there. But, you know, it, it's it's kind of like somebody hands you a Ferrari and an open road and is like, do whatever you want, yeah. you know, and, and yeah. you know that you can go as fast as you want. You can go wherever you want because they will unearth these new levels and layers to the performance and and make it just magical. It's it's incredible writing for actors like them because they inspire you to be a better writer, to dig deeper, because you know that um, that they'll they'll always keep digging themselves. So on set that day, you were just like, wow. Yeah, I mean, you just kind of watch. You just know it. if you know, you know. You, you you know when they're just both in it, and you know both of them are so deeply contemplative. Like we would talk a lot about life and philosophy off off camera, you know, their methods for preparing for the roles are, are vast and, and, and I, and not necessarily, it's kind of like how I write, you know, it's, I'm always thinking about different ideas and themes and, and, you know, Tony Hopkins is really obsessed with, you know, um, World War II, you know, and, you know, the sins of, of World War II and all these themes and, and Jeffrey Wright loves Emily Dickinson, you know, mm -hmm. and, and loves mm -hmm. to read Emily Dickinson and, and uh, to be a fly books. on the wall of those chats. It's pretty, it's pretty incredible. There's never a dull moment. And yeah. they bring all of those thoughts and all the conversations we have about philosophy and life in general to these characters. So, I yeah. mean, it is, it's Ama a I, I, amazing. Amazing. I'm so glad that you got to experience that. Uh, I've got to wrap up soon. So I've got two left. Has your perception of that show changed? A lot has changed, not only since it's first aired with both society and AI. A lot has changed since season three has come out. So, and this is a show that is sort of talking about where humanity is headed, which is something we're more hyper aware of right now than yeah. ever. So is your changing perspective, how does that bleed into the show? And do you try to keep it out or do you let it happen? I mean, in terms of the macro moves of society in the world, that's not something I can keep out of my consciousness and therefore my writing you know like in the same way in which when season one came out people were like was this influenced by the me too movement and i was like this was before the me too movement and it's just you know i like i live in a world and i'm a woman and understand this stuff happens you know and and, and in order to create even a 
fiction that seemed realistic to me. <laughs> I had to acknowledge yeah. some of this darkness, you know? And yeah. when you look at emerging technologies now, AI, um, those robots that dance and sing. I mean, it's horrifying. It's I mean, there's a horrifying. lot. I mean, I look at my Roomba with a little bit of fear every morning, you know, because I know one day I may be, uh, you know, it might be my overlord. All right. I've got a wrap here. It was a great chat. Uh, I just want to ask you real quick about Fallout. This is such an open world that you can sort of tell any story that you want, despite the fact that it is a franchise IP. What kind of stories can we expect from your Fallout? I mean, it's it's we're producing it for for these two brilliant writers um, and and the world that they are making is so gonzo and so fucking crazy that it's just ridiculously baller. And I oh, oh, music to my ears. I've been playing these games my whole life. Totally irreverent and mad and, and humorous and just insane. It's just insane. Awesome. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time. Congrats on the film. It was fantastic. I cannot wait to see all your work going forward. Fallout, The Sun, Reminiscence, Hits Theaters, and HBO Max on August 20th. Thank you, Lisa. Take care. And that'll do it for the Postgred Pod this week, you guys. We hope you enjoyed our little game. If you have any mindfuck suggestions or if you want to change our Mount Rushmore, let us know at Postcred Pod. If you loved our Mount Rushmore, leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Please, we are on the road to 69. You got to get there. We're close. You know you want to. Uh, Teaser for next week. We're going to be joined by director of a little film you may have heard of, Shang-Chi, which, Brandon, you've been calling a Shang for mad long. I was like, what the hell is this dude talking about? Commercials have been on. Turns out you've been nailing it this whole time. Yeah, man, Shang-Chi. Director of Shang-Chi, Daniel Destin Cretton? Cretton, yeah. Apologies, because you know we butcher names all the time. Yeah. So if that's not and, you know, if right. Google were to tell me how to say them, then I'd know, but they don't. Uh, so, yeah, join us next week for that, and we will talk to you all then. Peace. <laughs>